0: Welcome to the All or Nothing Podcast, where we bring to you companies that are here to change the game. And I'm the host, Rodrigo Ballone. Now, there's no doubt that our next guest is innovative, but what separates him from the rest is that he's also an inventor. To give you a glimpse into what I'm talking about, in the 90s, he developed one of the first webcams ever. In the early 2000s, he created eye tracking technology that is used in cameras and cell phones today and over the last few years he showcased prototypes of flexible cell phones and 3d holograms that are just about ready to hit the market so let's welcome the creator and innovator that runs human media lab roel vertigal how are you today
1: i'm good thank you for having me on the show
0: glad to have you on you have a history of supplying groundbreaking technology to some of the biggest companies in the world. So, what advice would you give someone who is launching a new product to the market?
1: Um, well, I think right now you have to be rather conservative. Um, you know, it's one of the things I see happening is that there's 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 hype made. Uh, this hype is made on, um, uh, for example, Kickstarter's people put videos on things that you can't build. Make sure that you can actually build what you're proposing, <laughs> uh, because we don't live in an environment that is very kind. To, yeah. you know, with, for example, with investment, we see is that you have to go through hoop then demonstrate people are using your product, or that you have a product, and then you get the next financing round. So, so the, the financing is very strictly tied to where you are in the product cycle. So that means if you're promising the world, and you can't deliver, it, then ultimately you're going to die. And another piece of advice would be execution. Um, you know, it's it's always important to have patents, but really the company find on the ones that execute well. And that means you have to have a great team. Jeff has to be super passionate about getting the best possible product at the best possible possible price, and uh, this is where a lot of the effort has to be. Um, you know, very often you see when, when people start up a company, they, they kind of get um, uh, overly uh, enthusiastic, and they they want to pretend that they're a big company, or they want to uh, focus a lot on marketing and they forget to actually develop their product. That's a huge mistake. It should be product first, product first. And when we're talking product first, it should be user experience first. Because you know, from the moment you open up the box to the moment you start using the product and throughout the life cycle of the product, it's very important you got your user experience, right?
0: Over the last several years, you and your team have showcased a few different types of technology that could really change the game. For example, your team have presented smartphones and tablets that are flexible and able to bend what type of new features will this technology bring that make it a must-have device?
1: Well, we've been asking that question for the longest time. It's like, why do you need a flexible phone? It takes a long time to actually start with that concept and then really understand what the usability is. Um, So I think from a pure physics point of view, that these things are going to be cheaper. They're not going to break. Um, They're going to conform to your body, uh, and you can have more of them. So you wouldn't necessarily just have one smartphone, but you might have ten smartphones, and each would be running an app that one of your favorite apps, and they could interact with each other. Um, but I think at a deeper level, where the significance of these flexible displays lies, is that we can do non-flat screens, and we can do, we can wrap them around products, and we can potentially skin products with them, creating a whole new category of Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. Um, so but that hasn't happened yet because we need stretchable displays for that, and we don't have those yet. Um, in the meantime, what can you do with these displays is, um, is, is, is bend them. And, and so that's one of the reasons why we installed the uh, bendable Smartphone. And then it was just the process of making as many apps as we could, trying to discover like, what else can we do with bend. And it turns out, we're, we're actually now, we're now 12 years later, and, and we're starting to finally see the light that you know, I can actually say bend is a useful feature uh, mm-hmm. over at the multi-touch. Uh, for example, uh, this year we came out with the world first holographic smartphone. And and because we have venable phones, we might as well make it venable. So we did. Well, it turned out that's a really useful feature, because I can actually you know, interact in a zen dimension like that. So I, by pressing the phone in, I can actually move objects into the screen and out of the screen, which is something that's very hard to do with touch. So as we go along, we discover more and more of these useful features. Um, that then ultimately becomes so compelling that, um, you know, regardless of whether it's inevitable to go to a flexible smartphone, people will actually want it for that reason. And then our, our experience with users and people commenting on our YouTube videos uh, has been overwhelmingly positive.
0: That sounds great, because when you talk about the phone being cheaper and also harder to break, those are two key features that everyone looks at when it comes to buying a phone. But you've also mentioned the holographic technology that you guys are working on. You and your team have debuted a product called Telehuman that has the ability to project life-size 3D holograms. Now, I could see this application being used in so many different areas. But what is the main goal with with the Telehuman? Is it to actually get a teleport in everyone's home? Well, this is a
1: good question, right? I mean, so why do we start these technologies? And... And very often the reason is more general than that. So, you know, I did a lot of work on sort of looking at if you're teleconferencing, um, what features do you need to convey? Do you need to convey eye contact? Do you need to be able to uh, do motion parallax and walk around the person? Do you need to be able to modulate uh, proximity? These are all very subtle nonverbal communication cues that are used in real life. And so at some point I decided, well, why not just show all of them? And if you want to show all of them, you have to build a hologram. So that's why we built hologram. It also was a cylindrical display. And we were very interested in these uh, flexible screens on on hard objects, uh, such as cylinders. And but we couldn't do that, but we could instead use a projector. Um, so we prototyped it. And then the question is like, well who who needs this? And and uh I would argue anyone who is interested in having a real telepresence experience with another human being instead of traveling. Uh, would need this, uh, so it could be something that's in your living room. But when you look at a product cycle, that's probably not realistic because it's going to be very expensive. So one of the areas, for example, we we installed a uh, a version of of and in an interactive experience in Bangkok for Telco, uh, who wanted to create a user experience that people could just walk into the future. So that's the first start. Uh, then the next, you could you could imagine. Big corporations that have multiple sites would buy these things in order to be able to give, uh, to communicate better between sites if you were there and try to cut down on top. And so there's this trickle down effect where, you know, first it's kind of like a theme park ride, then it becomes kind of a state that large corporations can afford or need because they have sites all over the world. And then eventually, 20 years later, everybody's got one Um, and and the has gone down. So that's kind of what I think the path will be. one of the thing, interesting things about the television is it's a form of virtual reality that doesn't require glasses, um, and um, that will be a thing at some point where you know these headsets will be will start disappearing again, and we will start using holograms just that are just projected in a room or projected on an object. And when you start getting that, then you can think of uh, these kinds of television screens that would basically be integrated into your home. They may have different form factors. Um, but they would give you the experience of of, of being there. Um, so imagine you would have a couple of these telling you cylinders and you're watching a sports cast or something like that. One tell you light show, you know, one reporter, another light show um, the uh, the interviewee, uh, sports sport person, and then you're standing there kind of like you know, looking at both of them as if you're part of that experience. Um, You know, there people are now experimenting with some of the the VR technologies for the real games. But I I think, ultimately, yes, VR transports you there. But I think ultimately, the cost of wearing a headset is so high that if we can create a different experience where objects simply get synthesized or people get synthesized into your living room, that's really what the future should look like, I think.
0: I definitely agree. If I could get the 3D hologram effect without the glasses, that's a win-win to me. But when do you think the market will be ready for this 3D type of experience? One issue is content.
1: So what's really nice about the VR hype cycle is that a lot of content is being created that we can also run on our television if you want. Um, And so that means that it's very easy to get the market ready uh, but let's say if VR headsets take over, it might take another 20 years before people start realizing, well, oh, you know, there's another way. Uh, if VR headsets fail, then people might start going towards that other way quicker. But I certainly don't think that it'll be widespread. It tells you the technology will not be widespread for another 10 years or so.
0: We hear all the time that is speeding things up. But you referenced a few times that it actually takes about 20 years to get a new technology into the market. So can you break down the different factors that actually go into that?
1: Well, I think what's speeding up is it, the speed up is, is a perceived speed up because there are so many more PhDs and so many more startups and so many more researchers working. There's more work being produced. But, but that doesn't mean it, take, it it goes faster into the market. Um, and, and the reason is, is that you know, there, there's, a, there's just a certain logic to the way Products, you know, Bill Buckley called it the long nose technology. You know, from the first idea to the first prototype. You know, inevitably, what you see is really the adoption of the ideas that's most problematic. You know, when people first see a flexible smartphone, you well, know, why would you want that? You know, um, you know, it, 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 this thing bends when I'm looking at it or working I don't want that. And then it takes a long time. And first, you know, also, you have to realize that. The flexible smartphones were already, or well, flexible displays and, and, and interaction techniques were already being designed by us in 2004, which is that's three years before the introduction of the iPhone. So now people first have to get used to an iPhone, a phone not being a phone but being more like a computer gadget, and then the apps, and then you know ten years later they start getting fed up with that and they want something else. So there seems to be you know, in, in the process, obviously. <clears throat> when you first are able to build a prototype, it's very often it's very new technology that just comes out of other research labs. So our first phones broke almost immediately. So that needs to then be solidified. So that costs a lot of money. Then once everything is done, you still have to build the factories, and you need $200 million of investors for that. So then if there's a company that is still making money off of LCD of phones, why would they start spending money on of building flexible display phones, unless you know people are done with with these LCD phones, or maybe competitors are. It's now too easy to be commoditized. Well,
0: this is exactly
1: where we are at with the smartphones. So now I'm expecting flexible phones to come out within the next two years or so, because the the iPhones get commoditized, and and you can't make money on that anymore. So there's a whole bunch of things that need to line up, and inevitably this takes. You know, it used to take, like, you know, the mouse was invented in 1963, first demonstrated in 1968, and first adopted in a product 20 years later because the patent runs out. You know, and then anybody can do it. So Apple put out the Mac in 1984, that's 20 years later, and then it didn't become popular until 1995 or so, which is another 10 years later. Another 30 years, right? Mm hmm. for the internet. It took 30 years for the internet. Um, Internet of Things was first talked about in 1989, just almost 20 years. Wow. And that has, you know, so maybe it's not 30 years now, maybe it's 20, or maybe it's 15. It's still a long time.
0: So it could be a while before these products actually hit the market. But Roel, you're currently sitting on a few different types of technology that could have a huge impact on how we interact with our devices in the future. So, how does it feel to be sitting on a potential gold mine?
1: Well, yeah. The question is, if it's a gold mine, because it's very hard for researchers to make money with 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 their ideas, and that's that's because um, um, because you're you're usually working so far ahead of time that by the time you know this becomes product ready, you're already working on something else because you'd like to stay there, like the real. You ask, like, what kind of feeling is the feeling? Is fantastic. It's wonderful to be the first to experience something. Um, but then, you know, when you see it in the market fifteen years later, uh, it's kind of funny. It's a funny experience because you've already seen it fifteen years before. So it's kind of old technology now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, and then it's your thing, but it's really not your thing because somebody else did it. Um,
1: you know, I, uh, I had that experience when uh, when Samsung put out uh, one of my inventions. Um, the smart boss feature on the Galaxy 4. That was a bizarre experience. I used that like 10 to 15 years earlier. And um, and now there wasn't the a product. And, uh, uh, so so it's, I don't know. Uh, it's not a gold mine. Uh, I can tell you that and The reason it's not a gold mine is because very often what happens is ultimately because it takes 15 years or 20 years, patents run out. Or people just do it anyway so they don't really care and then you have to sue them. Um, or you have to do your own startup, but then you have to time it correctly, and you have to give up the day job. So very often we see that, you know, the people that invent the technology don't really, aren't the ones making the money. Um, you know, virtual reality was invented by Ivan Sutherland in 1968. And I'm not sure, you know, how he's doing right now. I'm not sure he's doing fine because he invents a lot of other things. But, yeah, nobody talks about Ivan Sutherland when they talk about virtual reality. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of funny because people just forget whatever it's off was the that that invented virtual reality Yeah, uh you know i'm lab in, in, in california so i want to be in virtual reality there's tons and tons of other researchers that have been working on this for many many decades and then all of a sudden it becomes a thing and then everybody forgets about the rest
0: i think you explained it well by saying the joy of inventing because i would think that most people would see the disconnect between the actual inventor and the people making money because it takes so long for that invention to actually become a realization in the market. But there still has to be a huge amount of satisfaction on your part because you're literally seeing things 10, 20, 30 years in advance, and you represent a small group of people who are able to not only predict what the the, the market's going to need but also create the product as well. So there has to be a huge amount of satisfaction for that.
1: Oh, absolutely, and uh, you know, I mean, uh, when it comes to prediction, uh, uh, I'd like to go quote Alan, Alan Kay, who invented object-oriented programming. Nobody knows this. Uh, he invented the iPad. Nobody knows this. Um, he worked very closely with Steve Jobs on various products. Nobody knows this. I don't even think he was in any of the Steve Jobs movies, um, <laughs> and I got to hang out with him in May a little bit. Um, you know, he he was one of the first people to build a working graphical user interface with a mouse he Made a lot of contributions towards uh, what later became the Macintosh. He was uh, this was the prototype that Steve Jobs saw uh, when he came to the Jarrett's Park, which was an idea factory. Um, you know, he said the the best way of predicting the future is by designing it yourself. And um, you know, the, that's really what we feel like is that is that by coming up with these ideas and then promoting them through YouTube videos and, and, and articles and things like this. You change the future, because you show people what they might need, or what the problem is or what the solution is that they don't even know exists yet. Uh, And that's a really cool process, I think. So it's not so much about predicting the future. It's more about uh, solving futurist problems today and before they even occur. And so the work that went into the uh, smart box, uh, cell phones, eye tracking, was very much aimed at trying to avoid interruptions by smartphones and, and internet things leaking everywhere.
0: And the funny thing is is that, that never
1: happens. It, it, people just instead shifted their social norms. And now it's okay for everything to people all the time and then being interrupted all the time. In fact they want to know who sent a text message to them. You know, and, and, and one of the questions then becomes we were talking about how why does it take so long? You know, when does this actually become a real problem for people? And will, will they start to disconnect from Facebook and from notifications? I don't know. It seems like they're still enjoying it. Uh, so maybe they never will. But when they do, we already have a solution for them that we designed 12 years ago, whenever it was, uh, that, that can be clickable And then all of a sudden, that becomes a product. You know? So uh, it's that's a fascinating thing. And, and it's not always easy to, to predict exactly when your invention is going to be a thing.
0: Well, a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs out there. Is there anything you want to tell our audience before you go?
1: Um, well, you know, I often get the question. It's like, how can I, if you're if you're in a bigger organization, you know, uh, how can I promote innovation? And my answer is always like, the moment you have to ask that question, there's already something deeply disturbingly wrong in your organization. Uh, you know, and, and there's no such thing as innovation. There's just invention. Um, so start inventing today. And if you're you know if you're in a startup, create a culture of invention. Um, where, you know, you see what Google has done with their twenty percent of your time, uh, being able to have employees that are greatest, I think is such such benefit to a company because what it means is that if they're facing a the problem, they can think outside the box and come up with a really good solution for a problem if you promote that kind of thinking. And, and Normally, what we see—the larger a corporation becomes—the less creative they become, because everything gets, uh, you know, sort of focused on maintaining the status quo. And I think it's really important that every company has a research division, or at least a person doing some form of research. And when I say research, I don't mean product development—I mean actual research. You know. Do do something new, do something clever every day. Uh, it makes a, a life much more enjoyable, and it makes for a more resilient. Uh, that's really what innovation is about being
0: resilient to change Roel thanks for taking the time to be on our show I really look forward to seeing that next generation of technology now if you want to hear more interviews like this make sure you follow the All or Nothing podcast on iTunes Spotify and Tidal that's a wrap for this week's episode of All or Nothing we bring to you companies that are here to change the game and I'm the host Rodrigo belong.